It is so difficult to watch somebody who is addicted to sin destroy their life. To watch them hit rock bottom and pick up a shovel and keep on digging, isn't it? Haven't you known people in your life, maybe you were this person and you can testify, where something happened as a result of their sin that was so bad, you thought, well, at the very least, God's going to get their attention. And then you talk to them and not a thing has changed. Maybe they come to church and they weep and they cry and they say, oh, I'm so sorry, this time for real. And then you find out they're right back to the same old stuff as soon as the guilt wears off. We most often see this in those that are actually addicted, you know, drug addicts, alcoholics, whatever, where you're like, how long is it going to take for you to finally admit that this isn't working for you? You see the same thing with people that engage in sexual immorality, where they drive people away from them. They warp their own thinking. Maybe they destroy their marriage or their relationships. You know, maybe some unexpected children come along or diseases come into the picture and you think, you know, this has got to be the thing that's going to get their attention. And it hasn't changed a thing. And you wonder, and this might be my question for you today, what is it going to take for you to repent? You sit there and wonder, what is it going to take to finally get your attention to say, this sin is no good, I'm going to do something about it. And that is what John is going to express at the end of Revelation chapter 9 as we get to the end of this horrific judgment. That if you remember, back at the beginning of chapter 8, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour, it struck them dumb when they saw that seventh seal opened and saw what was coming next. And yet there are going to be those that fail to repent. So let me catch us up on where we are in the book so far. The book of Revelation is the Greek word apocalypse. It means unveiling revelation. And it's the description of the end of the world according to God. That John is in heaven, he's seeing a vision of a scroll being opened. And that scroll, among other things, represents God's plan for the end of the world. It's a good plan because it's going to mean the redemption of all things, but it's also terrible because it's going to mean judgment upon the world. And it's sealed with seven seals, and Jesus Christ, the Lamb, is the only one who's found worthy, as we just sang, to open that scroll. But as he opens each one of those seals, a little bit more of that scroll gets unveiled, and we see what's going to happen in this final seven-year period that we call the tribulation. And so far we've seen the rapture of the church has taken place. Babylon has risen. This is a worldwide dominating empire. We've not talked about it in great detail. Point is, your, all of your worst tyrannical globalist fears have come true. There is war, there is famine, there is pestilence. And then at the end of chapter 6 and into chapter 8, chapter 7 is a bit of an interlude, we see cosmic celestial disturbances ravaging the globe. There's a terrible earthquake. There's mountains and stars and fire and brimstone falling down from heaven. And we discussed last time what that might be, whether it's literal or symbolic. The point is, it's terrible. The water is poisoned. The grass and the trees are burned up. The earth is becoming literally scorched. And after all of that, in chapter 8, verse 13, John saw a vision of an eagle flying through heaven, pronouncing woe over the earth. And we might say, yeah, that's pretty bad. Woe to the earth. But what he's expressing is not what has happened that is woe, but what is about to happen. And you think, what could possibly be worse than what we've already seen? Well, we're going to see today two of them. After the seventh seal was opened, the seventh seal actually saw seven angels pick up seven trumpets. And each one of those trumpets, as it was blown, announced another judgment. We're going to see the fifth and the sixth ones today. We'll talk more about the timeline as we get closer. We believe we are, we are getting real close, if we're not there already, to the midpoint of this seven-year tribulation. And the pain is about to ramp up. When God unleashes hell on the earth, and the angels and the writer of the gospel are going to be astonished at the world's lack of repentance. But the question that you must keep in your mind, which we'll return to at the end, is when hell comes to your life, are you going to repent or persist in your wickedness? We'll begin by reading the first three verses of this chapter. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. 
Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. We'll pause there for now. The fifth trumpet is blown. We've seen several stars fall to the earth already. One of them was entitled Wormwood, which means bitterness, and it made the, the water poisoned. And we've seen smoke rise to heaven as well. In fact, a, a third of the day and the night have been blotted out because of the smoke of God's judgments. But here, there's something different. Another star falls to the earth. But this star is given personal pronouns and also takes action. So whereas before, it seems as though these were perhaps celestial disturbances or, or God just raining judgment down like on Sodom and Gomorrah, we seem to have a personal individual here. A star is a familiar symbol in your Bible for angels. Job 38, 7 talks about creation when all the angels sang for joy and the stars rejoiced. They're in Hebrew parallelism with each other. This is why Satan refers to himself as the morning star. That these, these images of stars in your Bible often refer to angels, and that's what we have here. And we have four interpretive options over who this star, who this angel is. Now, it does not really affect the interpretation of this passage, but I'll just run them by you. The first one is that this is Jesus, logic being only Jesus can open the bottomless pit. But Jesus is pretty consistently in the book of Revelation called a lamb, and he's not an angel, he's, he's Jesus Christ. The second option is that this is Satan. Uh, it is not specific whether or not it is Satan. Satan has no power over the bottomless pit except that which is given to him by Father God. Satan's not the king of hell. Hell is his finer, final destination. If anything, the Bible says he's the king of the air. So, not specific. Satan is considered a dragon in the book of Revelation. So, okay, so these are angels. Then is this a fallen angel or is this a holy, godly angel? If it's a fallen angel, it makes sense because we see a star falling from heaven. Although I don't think it necessarily has to mean fallen morally as much as John sees this bright star plummeting down to the earth. And the other option that be this would be a holy angel. This is one of God's angels given the keys to unlock the bottomless pit. And I think that's probably what we have in view here. Just because what is about to happen is horrible, it's not just wickedness, it's God's righteous judgment on the earth, appointed for this very day. And in fact, later we're going to see another angel tie Satan up with a chain and lock him in the bottomless pit. So I would expect it's probably the same thing, but uh, it's really not entirely relevant for the interpretation of this passage. In any case, this star opens up the bottomless pit and it releases smoke and locusts from the pit. And the word he uses for bottomless pit is the word abusas. Literally, this means without depth. Bottomless is where you get this idea. And it's also where we get the English word abyss. He sent this star to open the abyss. Now, what does this mean? The Old Testament, when it translates into Greek, uses the word abyssos usually to refer to the deep, as in the deep waters, the depths of the earth. Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, the depths, the abyssos. And then in Jonah chapter 2, verse 5, he talks about how he was thrown into the sea and swallowed by an angel, or by, by an angel, swallowed by a fish. We'll get there. Swallowed by, a, <laughs> swallowed by a fish and taken down to the abyssos, to the depths. So it's the Hebrew word tehom translated into Greek when you had the Septuagint. And it speaks usually of the watery depths or even of Sheol. The New Testament, though, specifies this a little bit more. That the abyss, with a capital A, is the place where God has imprisoned the worst of the worst demons. God has a demon prison that we call the abyss. Remember how I said, if you think the Bible is boring, you're doing it wrong? <laughs> Remember in Luke chapter 8, where Jesus comes to the, the men of the Gadarenes who was possessed by all the legion of demons? And when they saw Jesus, Luke 8, 31 says, they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyssos, into the abyss. Whatever it is, it's got this legion of demons quaking in their boots. Please don't send us there. We'll go into the pigs. Just Can we go to the pigs instead of the abyss? Jude gives us some more information about this, just kind of in passing, as the apostles kind of did sometimes. 
He says the angels in Jude 6, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. That's a rather interesting verse, in my opinion. The angels, so this is for angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority. Remember, God has established order in the angelic realm, and the mark of a fallen angel is one who has exceeded what he's permitted to do. Yet Jude is talking here about those that go even beyond normal rebellion. There is a level of permission that God gives to Satan and his principalities and powers to rule and dominate the earth. But those that go even beyond that are kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness. So apparently it's dark. They're all chained up until, for how long? The judgment of the great day. And that day comes in Revelation chapter 9. So Jude 6 would be a great cross-reference to write in your margins there. And Peter tells us specifically which demons are the foremost that have been sent here. 1 Peter 3, 19 through 20. Talking about Jesus, it says that in the Spirit, he went and proclaimed or preached to the spirits in prison. Jude just talked about that. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the day of Noah. The days of Noah. So Peter says that when Jesus went down into the grave, he went and proclaimed his victory in the abyss. There's a picture to have of your Lord Jesus. He shows up and what is he saying? Is he saying if you confess with your mouth and believe? No, no. He's saying you lost and you're never getting out of here. Until the day I release you for one last time to torment the earth. But even that is going to be under my father's control. New king in town, pretty much. So, okay, well, where did this come from? When did this begin? Peter said, in the days of Noah, those that did not keep their proper domain, in the days of Noah. This references the incident with the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6. When it says the sons of God, which is an Old Testament reference to angels, some translations try to smooth that over and say, well, it's just referring to Israelites, you know, the sons of God. Now, B'nai Elohim is pretty clear in Hebrew referring to angels, to use a very broad term to define these heavenly beings that exist in the spiritual. But the sons of God saw the daughters of men and saw that they were beautiful and they conceived children with these women. This tells us that before the flood, there were extraordinarily wicked demons that had sexual relations with human women and gave birth to abominable offspring called the Nephilim, which is a Hebrew word that means the fallen ones, the giants, the heroes of old. It also references in that verse that this happened afterwards also, which is where you get the sons of Anak that the children of Israel would drive out of Canaan. It's where you get Goliath of Gath and his brothers. And when you understand that, it makes a whole lot more sense why God told them to go into that promised land and don't leave a one of them alive. But this sin, I mean, that's so extraordinary that some people don't even believe that, even though it's plain in the text. So, well, why doesn't this happen anymore? Because God rounded him up and he locked him in the prison called the abyss. But one day, God is going to open the abyss. He's going to turn them all loose. And it's going to crack open and smoke is going to rise to the highest heaven. And these most wicked of demons are going to come crawling and flying and slithering out of there to torment mankind. It compares them to locusts with great power on the earth. But locusts like scorpions. Locusts will ravage your crops, but they're not going to hurt you. But now they have the tails and the power of scorpions. So locust, a very common image of the judgment of God, the eighth plague was the locust that God sent upon Egypt. But this is going to be like nothing else. Let's continue verses 4 through 12. Now that we know what the abyss is, now that we have a little pit in our stomach when we realize that it's been opened, verse 4. They, meaning these locusts, were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, as you might expect locusts to do. But only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. 
And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses. Already, this is strange, isn't it? The locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. So first, John describes what these locusts do. And second, he describes what these locusts look like. So in contrast to the previous trumpets, remember the first four trumpets were harming the grass, the trees, the fresh water, and the salt water. But in contrast to that, and in contrast to normal locusts, they're not going to harm the grass. They're not coming for your crops. They're coming for you. They're coming for the unsealed unbelievers. Remember back in Revelation chapter 7, before the seventh seal was opened, they said we've got to seal those who belong to God, and the 144,000 of Israel were sealed. They will not be afflicted by this. Because remember, that whole point of that passage is that Israel will survive to the coming kingdom. Some believe that the, the believers in Christ will also be spared from this. It is, uh, there's difference of opinion in chapter 7 over who is specifically sealed um, Point being, don't be around here if you can help it. Get raptured. You don't want to take that chance. But these scorpion locusts will torment people for five months. Now, five months is about the season during which a plague of locusts would come. Uh, is this a symbolic number? I have seen no reason why it should be. We're dealing with a seven-year period. Then five of those months are going to be afflicted by these demon locusts. And they're going to torment people like the sting of a scorpion. I myself have never been stung by a scorpion. However, I was on a missions trip to Costa Rica, and one of our young men was stung by a scorpion. And uh, he was a rather bouncy, energetic fellow. He worked out. He was a senior, so he was you know, in good shape. And I noticed him dragging, which was not like him. So I said, Sam, are you doing okay, man? He said, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Just you know, not feeling so good. Next morning, he doesn't want to get out of bed. What's going on? I, said, I don't know. I just got this big itch in my back. And we lifted up his shirt. He had a big old welt about this big, raised up, this big white looking sore. And we're like, what is that? And so we called in one of our helpers who was a nurse. She goes, did you get bit or stung? He said, well, yeah, I, 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 you know, something got me the other night, but I figured it wasn't a big deal. And we showed the owner of the hotel. He goes, oh, scorpion. He got stung by a scorpion in his bed, but this kid was too proud to say, ouch, I think I got stung by a scorpion. He was miserable. But imagine that multiplied to a demonic level. So bad that people are going to long to die. But just like the Lord restricted Satan in the book of Job, the lives of these people are going to be in God's hands for five months. It's going to be so bad that people are going to long to die. There's going to be mass attempts at suicide, and yet God will not allow them to perish. Can I just mention that is always where demons want to bring people. If you've ever been tempted to have traffic in any kind of witchcraft or sorcery, they're not your friends. They're not your guides. They're not your helpers. They lead people to death, and that's as far as they can take them. But these creatures appear as war horses. So are they little like, like locusts, like little war horses, or are they big? It doesn't say. With crowns, the word there is Stephanos. It's a victor's crown, not like a royal crown. It's, it, it's like they're given authority to win this one. You're not going to be able to fight back against these things because God has given them this authority to do that. So they look like horses for battle. So think armored, plated horses. Human heads with women's hair, but sharp, lion-like teeth. This, like I said, this carapace, this armor, and scorpion tails. And when they fly, it's loud. You know, we might compare it to motorcycles or to some loud engine coming your way. And their leader is one called, in Hebrew, Abaddon or Apollyon. Apolumi in Greek means to destroy. Both of those words mean the destroyer. 
there is an angel who has assigned authority over the bottomless pit, and he's called destroyer. Is this the devil? It doesn't say the devil. It says destroyer. Now, the thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. However, it is entirely possible that the Lord has assigned a benevolent angel to oversee these. Because remember, this punishment, as terrible as it is, is God's inflicting wrath upon the world. But it's a terrible king, one who is the destroyer. I'm inclined to think it's likely a demon prince. But it is possible. There is difference of opinion there. So we know the general thrust of this passage. That we've got demon locusts coming out of the pit. They look like these monstrous horses with scorpion tails. They're led by the destroyer. Let's try to get some details down. I'm going to look at four different possibilities of how to interpret this. It's really two ways of looking at it. And within those two ways, there's two more. So whether it's symbolic or literal is the first question. Those who view this as symbolic, there's one way of looking at this, that this is symbolic of an actual army. These are not real demons. This is John seeing a heightened apocalyptic picture of an army that is going to invade the world. And there is, of course, no shortage of invasions and armies in the, the book of Revelation. It says in Daniel, wars will continue to the end. So it's going to be wars the whole time. Wars and rumors of wars, Jesus said. How, some people even see in the description of these things modern machinery. Um, that some, I heard somebody say that, well, this is probably some kind of attack helicopter. Because John's never seen one before. He doesn't know what it looks like. So the rotors are like women's hair. And you know how people kind of paint like shark mouths on the, on the helicopters. And they sting people with the missiles. And yeah, I think it's a little ridiculous too. Those of you that are laughing at this. Uh, you know, I don't see helicopters climbing out of the abyss personally. Um, but this has been interpreted very often as an army. Whether a past army, there, a big popular interpretation a long time ago was that these, this was the army of Muhammad coming upon the world. And that Muhammad himself was the destroyer. Um, I do not think that is what this is. But that is one way of looking at it. The others who look at this symbolically, and this one is a little better, I think, is it's just describing a terrible plague that is going to come upon the earth that is going to be like the sting of a scorpion and the Lord is not going to allow them to die and that it is symbolized in Scripture by these demon locusts coming out of the pit. And some think that... As I remember, we talked about this last time, that there are those that believe the stars falling from heaven represent nuclear exchange, some kind of terrible warfare that, uh, again, John seeing it but not quite knowing how to describe it, that since these things come out of the smoke, that this is some kind of terrible radiation sickness that's going to afflict the world. Um, I actually read one author who said perhaps uh, these are uh, mutated creatures because of the radiation. And as interesting as that might be, I think that might be pushing it a little bit. Uh, I think this is at least true. It's at least true that this is going to be a terrible plague that afflicts the world. However, I certainly would think that this is a literal description here. And there's two ways to look at this. Number one, are these literal demons that are unseen? Meaning that this is going to be happening, that there will be actual demons out of the pit afflicting mankind. I believe it was John Walvoord who looks at this as possession, that the Lord is going to allow the worst demons out of the pit and there's going to be widespread worldwide mental and physical torment as these demons grab hold of people's minds and bodies. That if you tie this together with the idolatry, perhaps the mark of the beast, if you believe that has come at this point, that this would be the, the ultimate torture. Or through sickness, like it's describing, like a terrible pain that people are going to want to flee from, but they remain unseen. The other option is exactly the same, except you're actually going to see these things flying and crawling in your windows. That these horrors will be visible, flying around in these terrible swarms, tormenting the world, afflicting the world, stinging like scorpions, and seeing people writhing in pain as these things afflict them. I absolutely think these are literal demons. At the very least, you have to say that. That the Lord is, is turning loose, as Jude 6 tells us, that those that, spirits that have been bound in prison will be released on the day of judgment. Um, and I, I really could see this in either direction. Reason being, in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17, the city was surrounded by flaming chariots, but nobody could see it until Elisha prayed for the Lord to allow his servant to see. And that they were there all along, he just didn't realize. So that is typically how demonic and angelic activity happens, is that we don't see them. On the other hand, <laughs> this is a time like no other time. And the visual and even the auditory language that John uses here really nudges you in the direction that this is going to be very obvious what is happening. 
especially when you look at other prophecies that the Bible has that relate to this that are really intriguing. So will you turn with me to Joel chapter 2? You've got to turn left for a while until you get out of the New Testament. Joel chapter 2. Knowing the passage we just read, and knowing that Joel is prophesying about the end of the world here, let's see how similar these two are and see if you don't read it a little, a little more clarity. Long section, but it's worth it. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Huh. Remember what happened to start this thing off back in Revelation 9? Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. That's where the very famous Dies Irae comes from. Day of darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. And like war horses they run, as with the rumbling of chariots they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale, like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way, they do not swerve from their paths, they do not jostle one another, each marches in his path, they burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So, you've got that picture compared with the picture we have in Revelation chapter 9, also realizing that in verse 25 of that chapter, that's the verse where Joel says that the Lord will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. So it's just interesting, isn't it? That he describes a trumpet being blown on the day of the Lord when the sun will be darkened and there will be an army that looks like horses and yet leaps from the mountains and crawls up the windows and crawls up the walls and can't be attacked by any weapon. And then he says, but if you repent, I'll restore to you the years the locusts have eaten. So if you combine these two passages, I will say at the very least, it is entirely possible and maybe even in fact likely that the whole world is going to witness the star fall from heaven. Maybe they're going to think, what now? Right? Because they've seen four of these already. And out of the ground comes this terrible smoke. Now, do I think you could dig a hole and find your way to the abyss? I most certainly do not. Don't fall for those hoaxes that come out on, on the internet. Like, Russian miners heard screaming and whips cracking in the middle. Like, yeah, that's not real, guys. None of that's true. You can't dig a hole to hell, okay? Just like you can't fly an airplane to heaven. It's in the heavenlies. It's in the spiritual, right? God is omnipresent, but he's in the heavenlies, right? We don't see him. Similar to this, but imagine the ground cracking open, smoke, maybe it's in the ocean because the word is abyss, who knows? And out of that comes a terrible smoke and when we, you know, they send drones and they send pilots to go see what this is and out come these terrible demonic locusts with stings in their tails and they ravage the globe and, and they start climbing on people and stinging them and worrying them with their tails and the pain that people just can't endure. This is God's restraining hand removed. Remember 2 Thessalonians 2 talks about this? That the end can't come until God removes restraint. And that's exactly what happens here. He's even going to remove his restraint from the armies of hell. One of the worst judgments God can inflict upon the world is letting people have it their way. Physical torment, mental torment, spiritual anguish, millennia of demonic resentment unleashed on the world. That's the first woe. Five months long and no one can escape it. No mercy killing, no death, no suicide. The Lord says you will drink the fullness of this cup of wrath. Verse 13 now, back in Revelation chapter 9. That's just the first woe. 
Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, remember probably the incense altar where the incense was hurled on the earth, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them do they wound. This is the sixth trumpet. And this angel is commanded to release four angels that are bound at the river Euphrates. It means telling us right now, at the river Euphrates, there are four angels that are bound and sealed by the Lord until the day. The world is a lot more to it than what we can just see. The Euphrates River was and remains a mighty river in this area, going all the way up from uh, near Turkey and Russia, all the way down, of course, through Iraq and to the sea. This was the boundary of Israel for generations. It was the boundary of Rome at this time. And on the other side was the Parthian Empire. And many people see that this, this picture that they're using of the river Euphrates might be directly intended to appeal to the fears that the Romans living at the fringe of the empire had, that one day these Parthians who were mounted archers, very similar to the Huns in that way, might cross the river and invade. But even if that is the case, I don't think we should not take this literally. This was Babylon's river. This was the river where Babylon built their kingdom. This was, you heard Mesopotamia, which means between two rivers. One of them is the Euphrates, the other is the Tigris. The Tigris was Assyria's river, the Euphrates was Babylon's, which is significant and we'll return to it because Babylon has arisen again. And apparently, God has four angels prepared there down to the very day. Can I just say God is in total command here? What is going to seem like chaos to the world is 1,000% under the sovereign authority of Almighty God. He's got it planned down to the month, day, year, and hour when this is going to happen. And Jesus told us, it is not any of your business when this is going to happen. One of the few things we can absolutely know for certain about the end times is that we do not know when the end will come. We can look for it and be prepared for it, but Jesus said you can't know the times or the seasons, nor the day, nor the hour. But God's got it in control. And these four angels are released to slay one-third of the earth. In chapter 6, verse 8 we saw that one-fourth of the earth has been killed when the horsemen of death rode upon the earth. So if we take away one-fourth and then we kill one-third of what is remaining, that means only half of the population is remaining at this point. That means, in today's numbers, four billion dead people, at least. Can you imagine? We can't even comprehend a number like that. Four billion people, not including any that will have died of old age at this point, the Christians who have been raptured, any other normal disaster. But this judgment of killing a fourth of the remaining population is to be executed through an army of 200 million horsemen. He says to be released to kill the people of the world. And then he all of a sudden starts talking about horsemen. It seems that these are function like generals in the spiritual realm. They're going to lead an army upon the world. And he describes these horses, if you want to call them horses. They have breastplates, the colors of, well, he, he describes fire, he describes sapphire and sulfur. And uh, I read a great uh, author who said that word for what we have as sa sapphire, other translations have hyacinth, is uh, very frequently used in Roman culture as the color of smoke. So he says, what you have of these three colors is the color of fire, the color of smoke, and the color of brimstone. And I can't help but have in my mind a picture of this internal fire blazing out from the inside of these horses, burning from within, with lion's heads. We were at the zoo not long ago with the kids. When the lion was up and it was awake, 
And he was roaring. It's pretty impressive. But I mean like barely roaring. And yet you could, I mean, just kind of like groaning more than anything else. And yet we're walking away. We're halfway out of the zoo. And you can still hear this thing. Like if that thing really wanted us to turn loose, a lion is about as caged as it wants to be. You know what I mean? Sitting there watching it drink. Look at the size of the mitts on that thing. You know, and it's yawns and its teeth are this enormous, you know, fangs. And that's the head of this thing. And it's breathing fire. Again, there's that internal furnace that's being breathed out of its mouth. And they have tails like serpents that bite and wound. So just in, think you, you got away, just in case you think you got away from one, it can get you from that way too. So once again, we're faced with interpretive questions uh, regarding these monstrosities. Uh, the question is, is this symbolic or literal? This, even more than the locusts, has been seen by many as descriptive of modern warfare. That, well, it's sort of like a tank. That it's, it's got fire and smoke being shot out of its mouth and it's armored and you know, the, the gun, swivel gun, sort of looks like a tail maybe. And John doesn't quite know what he's looking at, so he's just describing it as best he can. Uh, or maybe some people say, well, it doesn't have to necessarily be that. It's just a picture of an army from the east invading across the Euphrates. Now, we know that this will happen later, but it happens later and it happens separate from this. So you can't conflate the two of those things. I think that there might be a lot of overlap in terms of time for these things, but as we see, that doesn't come till much later. So I think, once again, this is a literal picture here that even if this is an army, it's a demonically inspired one. Uh, Tim LaHaye and others actually see this as literal hell riders on the earth, that these horsemen are going to be running through the world. It's not going to be like anything else. We just had locusts that were permitted to wound but not kill. And now we have these horsemen whose job is to kill, to finish the job, you might say. That these are visible on the earth. Some people, again, see this as taking place in the heavenlies. I say you can hold that opinion as long as you agree that there will be very real effects. In which case, if they're invisible, you have people spontaneously igniting as far as the rest of the world is concerned. Catching fire, wounds growing on their bodies, which is one reason why I believe that it's the apocalypse, man. <laughs> it's horrible. There's demons crawling out of the pit, and there's flaming horsemen riding and killing the world. Earth is being devastated by this demonic onslaught under all of Babylon's pretensions of peace and pretensions of we've got everything under control. And it seems like this kind of thing is probably what is going to drive the Antichrist to secure his own kingdom. If we're going to stand against things like this, we need a strong leader like myself. But we will get to him in, in just a few weeks. Right now we're more seeing the plagues and the, the judgments that come. We will get to that. But the Lord is not going to allow this empire to prosper. They're not going to have happy days under Babylon. This is the second woe. We've still got one to come. And in fact, the third woe is going to open up a whole other set of seven more judgments that are going to come on the world. The seventh seal contains seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet announces the seven bowls. It's hard to imagine this, isn't it? Something like this. I, I see this as just as how the, the world before the flood was so radical and different from what we have now. Peter said that the world that then existed perished, which is one reason among many that we can be as enthusiastic and supportive of the scientific method and everything else today, but as far as the word, world tells us, science is based upon the theory that the way things work now are the way things have always worked. But if you look at the Bible, it's not what, what it was. There were you know, angels cohabiting with men, People were living to a thousand years old. There was, it wasn't like it is now. And it's very hard to even conceive of it. We talked about this in the book of Genesis. But I mean, it's going to be like that again when the tribulation comes about. It's not going to be like any other time. This is why Jesus said if the, those days were not shortened, nobody would survive. That there's going to be stars falling from heaven. There's going to be these demonic afflictions, visible or invisible. It hardly matters if you're the one suffering from it. And yet the worst of this comes in verse 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, 
Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Only half of humanity remains. And yet, with all these terrible things going on, people refuse to make the connection between their sin and the death that is coming upon the world. They still have not yet learned the first principle of Christianity, which is that the wages of sin is death. They continue to worship these foolish idols. And John emphasizes that to worship an idol is to worship a demon. There's two lessons to learn here, and they're both in these verses, that in one sense an idol is nothing. It's a rock, it's a piece of gold, it's a lump of wood that you made and said, now please save me. But as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 20, and as John tells us here, evil fallen angels take advantage of the worship of a rock in order to arrogate praise for themselves. That's what idolatry does. Idolatry is not kind to its adherents. That they're going to persist in worshiping these demons. And of course, the supreme irony here is that the world has just been ravaged by two waves of demonic armies for at least six months, and they're still worshiping demons. I, I am convinced that what is going to happen prior to the rise of the Antichrist and, and his religion is that they're going to start making images and idols of these very demons and start worshiping them. Because that's the depravity of the heart of man. Perhaps we can appease these things. I want to worship the most powerful thing the world has ever seen. Not realizing, which should be so obvious, that if that's the way your God treats you, why would you worship such a God? Demons love to irrigate worship for themselves. They love to get praise. They love to make friends with you so that they can torment you and torture you and ultimately destroy you. And we look at this and we say, how foolish. How can you worship demons, worship idols, when it's so clear that God is pouring out wrath on the world? Well, let me ask you, are you so foolish? Do you persist even now, in the same behavior that is destroying and ruining your life? Are you continuing to, so to speak, bow down before the same altar, even though it's killing you? Look at the four things that John references here. Murder. I've never killed anybody. Well, do you have a murderous heart? Because Jesus tells us it's the same thing. Do you have hatred in your heart? Do you have violence in your heart or even in your life that if you're going to solve something, you're going to solve it with your rage and with your fists? You're going to push people around? You're going to harbor murderous thoughts in your heart, maybe about your political opponents or a different social group than you? Do you spend time cultivating rage and anger in your heart? How's that working out for you? Are you a more pleasant person when you nurture your rage? How are your relationships when you walk around hating people? Does it make you kinder? Does it make you more like Jesus? And yet we'll persist in it. I can't tell you how many times I have told somebody to their face, listen, friend, you are obsessed with politics and it's made you into an angry, vicious person and you need to take a break. You're saying I shouldn't be informed? I'm saying it's killing you. You are not apparently the kind of person that can engage because you are so susceptible to the rage they're trying to stoke in your heart. And yet people will persist in going back to the same well. Men that we've met in prison that are murderers and they get locked up and put away for it. And yet they continue to be just as violent and even just as murderous as they're paying the penalty for the first one they committed. What about sorcery? Well, there's no magicians here. Don't be, so, don't be so naive. You run across this stuff, more stuff than you think. What about fortune telling? I don't know what it is with the sudden resurgence of popularity in tarot card reading. I, I don't know why I'm seeing it all over the place now. Oh, it's just fun. No, it's demonic. Astrology. Going to a palm reader. Going to a psychic. Trying to have some sort of seance and commune with the dead. Doing incantations and spells. And what, what, what's the, help me out, what's that herb that people now want to, sage, that's the one they're into now. We're going to spray sage around the house because it's going to drive away the bad energy. Y'all, that's paganism. That's witchcraft. 
In case you missed that, I'm going to take this, this herb, this spice, and it's going to send away bad energy. Do we believe in energy as Christians? No, we believe in personal spiritual beings. And God says, if you've got a problem, come to me. Don't try to fix it in the spiritual realm yourself. That's witchcraft. And actually, the word for sorcery there is pharmakia. You know what word we get from that, don't you? Pharmacy, drugs. Well, what do drugs have anything to do with sorcery? Everything, you guys. You've seen it on TV or you've watched a documentary, you've heard the stories. What do you think these witch doctors do when they start trying to commune with, the, with their mediums or whatever it is? They get high. That's how this stuff came to the States in the first place. All the hippies went over to India and said, we want to achieve enlightenment. And they said, bro, you got to smoke some pot. It'll elevate your mind because it was part of that culture. They bring it over here and oh, now it's just a recreational drug. Yeah, that's a great idea. Completely and intentionally lose control of your ability to think. That'll work out for you. Well, we can see, we can grow our minds. It's a lie. It's the same lie as the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Take a bite. You'll be like God. Well, you can say whatever you want, but that's, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. You're exactly the same as the one that's going to bow down to a demonic idol after they've been ravaged by the same demons. Okay, what about the next one? Sexual immorality. I don't even need to push this one, do I? How many people have completely destroyed their relationships and their marriage only to persist in the same thing? Pornography, fornication. One of the saddest things to see is people that have dedicated their life to casual sexual hookups have been made miserable by it and yet you try to maybe suggest that the reason you're miserable is because you're treating sex like a casual thing and they lash out and get angry at you. You can't tell me how to live my life. It's, not, it's the inability to think that I'm going to do this no matter what, but it's causing these problems. How do I fix them? If, if that's your attitude, I can't help you. Homosexuality, transgenderism, that whole thing. We talk about it often enough, but we've got to remind you. How, many, how much does the homosexual community need to be ravaged by AIDS and by depression and by mental health disorders before they think maybe this is the problem? about theft? Well, I never steal nothing. Yeah, maybe you have. How about this? Is there a thief's heart? Are you a greedy person? Say, I've never stolen anything, but if you had the chance and if you really needed to, if you thought that you'd have to give up your current lifestyle, unless you stole, you'd say, I'd be right over there. So many times we talk about our lives falling apart. We talk about losing everything, and we talk about moving from the upper middle class to the lower middle class. You're not losing everything. You're just losing your current lifestyle. And so we will, we will cheat. We will lie. We will scheme. We will use loopholes. We will manipulate. We will undercut our business partners so that we can move forward. The Lord sees that heart as the same thing. The heart that drives the thief is the same heart that's driving you. Well, I just think that this is just the way it is. If you're not going to do that, you're not going to get ahead. Well, then wouldn't it not be better to stay behind? That's, that's loser talk. Then you're, you're bowing down before the same altar that's ruining your life. Some people grab a shovel when they hit rock bottom. Some people come to church, weep and cry, have the pastor pray for them so they feel better, and then they go back and doing the same thing the next day. One day, though, the things you are worshiping through your actions and through your heart are going to come for you. That abyss is going to open up. It's going to come. It's going to claim you. It might be tormenting you now, and all you want is for it to end, and you won't come to Jesus to be healed. That means the end is going to come with the riders of hell riding you down. Well, just because I'm having a bad time, that doesn't mean necessarily it's because of sin. Yeah, but in Luke chapter 13, Jesus taught us to treat every tragedy as a wake-up call, even if it had nothing to do with you. When they said, did you hear about those guys that were killed as they were worshiping on the altar? And Jesus said, well, if you don't repent, you will likewise perish. What about that tower that fell over and killed all those people? And Jesus said, do you think that they were worse sinners than somebody else? What do you think, Jesus? I think that if you don't repent, you're likewise going to perish. If you have hit a rough patch in life, if you've been smacked around by circumstances, if the nation is going through a crisis, you have the opportunity to use it as a wake-up call for your own sin. Well, I don't think this caused that. All right, well, are you going to wait until it's your fault? 
You're going to wait until you're the one that makes a mess? If you go through something that you couldn't control, that's one thing. You can be tough, you can be stoic, and you can march through it. But if you're in a mess that you made, it is hard to get out of bed in the morning. Why wait for that? Because today, you still have time. The abyss is still closed. The four angels are still bound at the river. The Lord has not opened the scroll yet. But it could be today. It could be today when the day of darkness comes. You have time to flee from the wrath to come. What, you trying to scare me? Yes, you should be afraid. Come to Jesus. Take refuge in the arms of the only one that could save you on that day. The only one who has been down into that pit and come back out of that pit victorious. Why not join that side? And if you sit here and think, well, I could never worship a God that would pour out judgment like that on the world. Well, you must have a very high opinion of yourself then to think that the way you live doesn't deserve that kind of thing. Well, I mean, there's like, you know, Al Capone and Adolf Hitler. Like they, they, they deserve that, but, but not me. Or maybe you say it like this, but not my mama. Not my kids. They don't deserve that. Don't kid yourself. Don't try to be a nice person and get your way out of the gospel. None of us are perfect. We're all full of sin, and the wages of sin is death. And those that, ha- that reject God's 2,000-plus year offer of mercy and forgiveness deserve everything they get. You can be lifted up out of the pit today. You can be on the opposite side of this. You can be the ones that will be able to stand on the day of wrath. Because as David wrote in Psalm 40, the Lord drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. And he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to the Lord our God. Some of y'all are living in the pit. The only company that your sin deserves is that which is locked up there now. But right now, Jesus has opened up the door and is reaching down his hand to you and saying, come on, let's get out of here. What does it take? You've got to cry out to Jesus for help. He died on the cross and rose from the dead. He went down into the grave and came out of it. He's the only one that therefore can get you out of it when you go down there. You say, I know I'm a sinner. I'm going to repent of my sins and my idolatries. I'm leaving that stuff behind. I'm renouncing the old life and I'm starting a new one today. I believe you, Jesus. I believe you came and I believe you're coming back and I need your help. Bow the knee to Jesus. Swear your loyalty to the coming king. I am an ambassador going ahead of the invasion that is coming when the king comes to take back the throne that has been usurped and stolen from him. And yet he is offering mercy and peace to anybody who comes right now. Because on that day, when the abyss shall be opened, it'll be too late. 